We'll be in John 15, John 15 this morning. Uh, We'll start in verse 18. So in your pew Bible, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the pew Bible, page 1243, 1243, in the pew Bible in front of you, John chapter 15, we will begin in verse 18. We're in the third part of our Lean In series, and uh, so Pastor Tony, the last couple of weeks has uh, journeyed us into John chapter 15. We've spent some time in the first few verses of John chapter 15. And uh, so uh, this morning we will endeavor into the latter part of the chapter and see what God has in store for us. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer today. God, we bow before you this morning. God, as the song declares, we confess that we need you, God. Uh, Lord, without your presence, God, we are nothing. Lord, without your power, God, we're incapable of doing anything. And so this morning, God, we acknowledge your majesty in our lives this morning. God, we declare the greatness of who you are. We declare, God, that in and of ourselves, we are not worthy of your presence, but God, because of your grace, you grant us the powerful and majestic presence of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit. God, this morning, we pray that through that presence, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, God, that you would give us eyes to see. God, we pray just as for Vaughn and for Jason this morning in the baptism videos, Lord, that there would be a confrontation with you. God, that we would, we would be confronted with the reality of who you are, God, and that, Lord, we would leave today different than the way that we came in. God, we pray you meet with us, Lord. Grant your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. John chapter 15, John chapter 15, we begin... In verse 18, this is what the Bible says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Verse 22 says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus has just finished the vine and the branches discourse. He's explained uh, the in the last couple of weeks. Pastor Tony explained uh, the relationship that we have uh, through Jesus as the true vine, and John here is capturing the moment of where Jesus is assuring believers that He is in fact the only substance of life. The, 
the past couple of weeks as we've talked about that, Pastor Tony has mentioned that life is only lived attached to Jesus. I mean, what better testimonies this morning of how they ventured out on their own apart from Christ, and in doing so, uh, they were not living the life that God created them to live. You see, in that vine and branch relationship, the only fruit that is produced in your life, the only fruit that is produced in my life is if we are connected to the vine, which is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 15, earlier in the chapter, verse 5, the Bible says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So it is a foregone conclusion that if you are attached to the vine, that if you are in Christ, if Christ Jesus is your Savior, that you will bear much fruit. He it is that bears much fruit. It is not, uh, you know, if or maybe or possibly. It says that you will. And then he says this, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, where we get in trouble in our own lives is that we try to do things apart from Christ. And we try to uh, create situations or we try to solve problems without the presence and the guidance of the Lord Jesus. You see, the vine imagery that Jesus is using here is no doubt in direct reference to the fruit that believers, that you and I, should produce through the Spirit. The, the fruit that remains, it's, it's disciples that make disciples. You see, the, the latest command, the last command that Jesus gave was to go and make disciples. It's called the Great Commission. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers in Jesus Christ, it is known that as a believer, guess what happens in our life? We make disciples. You see, you see the number three, the third step on the pathway is that as we come to know God, we will join a faith community. That's the local church. That is plan A, number one mission of God. There is no plan B, which in joining community, what will happen naturally is that we will begin to multiply. That our faith will become known not only in our lives and the circle around us, but in the places and the people that we interact with. And so we become disciples who make disciples. For some reason in our culture, this has become an optional part of following Jesus. But it was an assumption in Scripture. If you follow Jesus, other people would follow you, and they would follow Jesus because of you. Which, the first blank on your handout, you've probably heard this before, but it's that I want to live a life this is our mission. I want to live a life so that others who do not know Jesus but know me will want to know Jesus because they know me. Right? Isn't that the mission of the believer? That remember, the church is plan A, and so as we follow Jesus, so Jesus is telling them, as you follow me, as you're connected to the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches, as you're connected to me, then life of Christ will flow out of us. This is, this is common uh, knowledge that Jesus is talking here, that as a disciple of a master, of a rabbi, of a teacher, that you will begin to imitate, to live the life that that teacher has led you to live, and then he goes into the middle part of John 15, and he talks about how that happens, and he talks about the love of believers. And so he's sharing with them how you will produce fruit and how that fruit will affect those that are around you. This is why the union of love, which Jesus talks about in the middle of John 15, is what joins believers with Jesus. 
And it can never be a comfortable, exclusive huddle that only we can share. That's why the gospel, remember, came to us while it was on its way to someone else, right? And so when Jesus saved you, when Jesus saved me, he saved me as part of a chain that he's reaching other people. That's disciples making disciples. We've talked about this many times, but you work where you work. You're in the family that you're in because Jesus put you there, because God is sovereign, and everything that he does is perfect. And so our mission is simply to what? To bloom where we're planted. Wherever God puts you, wherever you find yourself, God puts you there, and your objective as a follower of Jesus is simply to produce fruit. And then Jesus shares in verse 18 a stark reality with the disciples. I imagine as they're walking along and, uh, you know, it's been mentioned the last couple of weeks by Pastor Tony, maybe there is a vineyard that they're passing and he gives the illustration of the vine and the branches. And then he talks about love and that's a great topic for us. He, he talks about uh, how this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you and greater love has no one than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Of course, we know the future, the rest of that story and we know that ultimately Jesus does that and, and actually just a very short time. And so I can imagine in the hearts of the disciples, they're walking with Jesus. He talks about the vine and the branches. They, they, they know that. They get that analogy. That was common uh, vernacular for them during that time. And then he talks about love. We all love to talk about love, right? That's it just makes you feel good inside to, to talk about love, to be loved. It feels good to love someone else. And so Jesus shares about the love. Greater man, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, in verse 18, the opposite. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And I can imagine, you know, the sound when a, uh, when a, a track stops and it's like a, a car sliding on its tires. It's like, Erp. all of a sudden the disciples are like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Where are we going with this? You know, it's like getting good news, and then all of a sudden, there's bad news that attaches to it. Have you ever uh, been asked, okay, I've got good news and bad news, which do you want first, right? And so I, I, I thought about this, and I thought, you know, well, what's another example of this in Scripture? And so remember the story of Abraham, and Abraham uh, is offering a sacrifice to God, and so Abraham takes with him his only son, who he had prayed for for many, 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 many years. And Isaac is there. And so Abraham, in my mind, I'm imagining the conversation, goes to Isaac and says, uh, Isaac, we are going to sacrifice to God. Yes, that sounds amazing, Dad. I want to go. I want to be a part of that. All right, we're going to go up to the mountain, and we're going to sacrifice to God. Fantastic. Dad, what can I do? What do I need to get? Do I need to gather sticks? What, what do you need me to bring, Dad? And, and so we'll get everything together, son, and we're going to go up on the mountain. And so they get everything together, and, and Isaac, Dad, uh, Mom, guess what? I'm going with Dad. We're going to go up to, to, to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to go make an altar to God. And so I imagine there's all this excitement, and so Isaac's like, yeah, I can't wait. We're going up to the mountain. We're going up to the mountain. And they get up to the mountain. You know the story, right? And so they get up to the top, and all of a sudden, Isaac begins to realize, wait a minute here. There's no sacrifice. And he starts looking around, and he says, Dad, uh, where's the sacrifice? And his dad says, you know the story. God will provide, right? And then he says, uh, Isaac, uh, come over here for a second. 
And he begins to tie Isaac up, right? You know the story. And he lays Isaac on the altar. That was the moment to where the disciples were like, wait a minute here, time out. You're talking about love, and now you're talking about how we're going to be hated for this? Or in other words, Isaac says, wait a minute, I thought we were going to sacrifice to God, and I'm the one who's going to be the sacrifice? And so there's this time out moment that takes place, I believe, in the disciples' life that Jesus says, hey, um, you're going to be hated, by the way, because the world hates me. You see, Jesus gives the parallel between love and hate, which in the economy of God makes absolute sense. It makes absolute sense. Everything in the economy of God is opposite of the world. And so the first blank uh, on your handout, the second blank on your handout rather, says, we have been accused. I'm here to declare to you this morning, it's probably something you already know, but that as a follower of Jesus, you and I have been accused by the devil. You see, the Bible says in Revelation that he is an accuser of the brethren. And if you've ever had any association with legalism whatsoever, you know exactly what I'm talking about is that your past comes back and he's always trying to get you to think about all the things that you've done wrong and how bad of a person you are and how you'll never be anything in the kingdom of God. That's what accusations are, which is why Jesus, knowing that that would happen, wrote uh, through the life of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is now, as a believer, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we've been accused. We've been found out that we're followers of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden, you're not the most popular man on the block. You're not the most popular lady at work anymore. You see, there were people that Paul came in contact with. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he has gone to Thessalonica. Demas fell in love with the world, and he left following Jesus to follow the world. You see, there's a lot of people around us, a lot of people, maybe even in this room, that have a greater affection for the world than they do for Jesus. You see, people that follow Jesus, they're weird, right? They're different. They have standards. They have uh, disciplines that they follow. We do things a certain way. We're not like the world. We don't just accept the status quo. And Jesus is saying here that there's a distinct difference between a follower of Jesus and someone who doesn't follow Jesus. You see, a a person who loves the world is someone who lives for the world. Their their affections, their desires is for the world. You see, worldliness is primarily an attitude that is motivated by wrong desires and the wrongful promotion of self. And so you ask yourself, well, am I living for the world? Well, what are your desires? Are your desires for the things of God or for the things of the world? Are you always interested in promoting yourself, or are you interested in promoting Jesus, that Jesus' majesty would be on display? Here's some questions maybe that you could ask yourself to answer that question. What are the victories in your life? When you, you know, in D group, we have the question, what are your highs and what are your lows? What are your victories? What happened this week in your life that you're most proud of? Does it have something to do with God or not? What are the wins in your life? You, you say, if this happens, it's a win. 
If I accomplish this, if, if this takes place, what, what are the wins in your life? What are the things that motivate you? I sat this week and, and thought about these questions. What is it that is the desire of my heart? What is it that I want? What is it that is a good day? What makes a day a good day? What are we living for? What is the end result? You see, a lot of times I think when we think about worldliness uh, versus godliness, a lot of people think that it's just, you know, godliness is just living by a set of rules. But if you think about it, living by a set of rules is not, will keep, is not what will keep you from worldliness. You see, I mean, think about this. Adding new laws or changing current ones don't make people instantly compliant. That's a big debate today, right? Is let's just change the rules and then everybody will be instantly compliant. Well, that's not how that works. I mean, I remember years ago I was in the insurance industry, and this was before in, uh, auto insurance was mandatory. And they passed a law, and all of a sudden, auto insurance became mandatory, which means everybody raced to the insurance uh, agent and got insurance, right? Wrong. I was an insurance agent at the time. What happened was it be, it, we instantly had millions, instantly had millions of criminals in our state because they're not complying with the rules. So creating a new set of rules doesn't make people compliant. Here's what I say about that. You cannot police morality. You can't. And so if we think, if you're here this morning and if you think, well, if I just live by a new set of rules or a better set of rules, then worldliness will leave me, well, you're wrong. It's not going to happen. Me and many other people can tell you that living by legalism will never achieve godliness, and there's a whole book that talks about it called Romans. You see, there has to be a change of heart. How, how are you different? How am I different today? How do people know that we're followers of Jesus? Why have we been accused? Because we've had a change of heart. The next blank on your handout says a changed heart equals a changed life. I love that statement. A changed heart equals a changed life. The things that you and I used to do, we no longer do. You see, the question is, and, and Pastor Tony had no idea what I was going to say this morning, and yet he said this. He said, what captures your heart? Remember that at the baptism? And that's written down here as a question right now in our handout is, what is it that captures your heart? You see, a changed heart equals a changed life. God, when he invades your life and you surrender, that you, you and I give up our life, we say, not I, but Christ. When we do that in our life, our life will change. What captures your heart? The, the best way that I can illustrate this is uh, growing up, uh, you're probably just like me. Uh, you thought that going to McDonald's and getting a McDonald's Happy Meal was the greatest day of your life. Any, anybody can test, testify to that, right? They, it was like, you know, I don't know what they put in those things, but it's addictive, right? And so I wanted to go to McDonald's. And anytime, remember, I, I joked a few weeks ago that I grew up in a town that had one restaurant, which was Applebee's. And so it was either there or nothing. And so when you got to go to McDonald's, that was a big deal. And so we would go to McDonald's, and we would go, and I'd get the Happy Meal, and you'd get all the toys. I, I just remember that being the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen in my life is when mom or dad said, today is a McDonald's day. 
And so I had this great love, this great affection for McDonald's. But fast forward a few years later, when I grew up, I realized that if you leave a McDonald's French fry in your car, that at any time in the future, you can still eat it, and it's exactly the same. Right? You found fries from several years ago, and they haven't changed. There, you can warm them up, and boom, you're back to square one. And so I actually, I had this love for something that, I mean, I don't know if I should have loved it or not, but so on your handout, the things that you once loved, you know what? You don't really love those anymore. Right? So if McDonald's is a choice, well, I'll just eat at home. Right? The things that you once loved, well, you don't love anymore. Fast forward, I'm serving at a church in Jasper County. One of the men from the church came to me and said, Pastor, we're going to take you out to eat, you and your wife. I said, all right, where are we going? And he says, well, I know of this nice restaurant out in, uh, you know, out in the country, and I want to take you all there. So a man by the name of Hollis got us in his car. We started driving for hours. We drove a really long time. I thought he had actually taken me out to kill me because we drove for quite a while. And so we're driving. We finally get to this restaurant. We get out there, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. It's in Wayne County. And so uh, we go, we get out, we go in, sit down. You know, it's like hard. It's an old, old, old house. And uh, so we sit down, and they bring out the nicest steak that up until that point in my life I had ever had. I didn't know food could taste that good, right? It was amazing. And so I had this giant steak that was free, which made it even better, right, because Hollis was paying. So I got this giant free steak that I was able to taste what real food that doesn't last forever tastes like. Now, here's the question. Do you think that after eating that, that I would choose McDonald's over the steak? You've been there before. This is our story. I mean, we've all, this is all of our story. And so what happened is that I began, you began to love things that you didn't even know existed. Right? That's what happens with a changed heart that equals a changed life. Is that we began to love things, Jesus, a life of holiness, That prior to our confrontation with Jesus, we didn't even know existed. But when we come in contact with Jesus, he changed everything. And so because of that, the world says, wait a minute, that's not the norm. Jesus said, if you follow me, they're going to hate you because they hate me. You see, it's the same for all of us. When we are associated with Jesus, our lives will be radically different. So the question on your handout says this, the, the, it says, if I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? If I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? There may come a day when that will be a real question. I remember growing up, that was a question that was always circulated. If I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence? Is there, is there evidence that I've been changed? Is there a before and after? 
You see, Jesus uses the word hate seven times in the next eight verses. Because the world is marked by hate. I mean, unfortunately, you turn on the news and it's any channel and any news anchor and it's full of it. You see, the mark of the church is love. Jesus just showed them in the middle of John 15. And so I thought, of, I thought about this scenario, and it's a question that we, I think, always kind of run into when we go through this, is, is how could a world hate the very one who came to redeem them? How is that possible? You see, Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He was on a mission. I, I mean, job well done. Mission accomplished. As he said on the cross, it is finished. He came to seek and save those who were lost, those who were separated from God, those that were incapable, which is everyone, of reaching God. He said earlier, John writes in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That sounds like somebody, I want to be on their team. But yet the world says, nope, uh, we don't have anything to do with that. How could a world hate the very one that they came, that came to redeem them? Well, as I thought about that, I thought about, well, why, why does the world hate Jesus? Well, I want to give you a couple things. It's not on your handout. I just want you to listen. Why does the world hate Jesus? Today, why does the world hate Jesus? So, first of all, the world hates Jesus for his words. They hate Jesus for his words. You see, Jesus wasn't mean. He wasn't selfish. He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't hypocritical. I'm not saying because he said things that he shouldn't say. I'm saying they hated Jesus because when they, the realization of what Jesus said and the realization of who they were were two totally different things, and they couldn't come to the reality, and many people in our world today cannot come to the reality of that truth. I would say that John 14, 6 is probably the hardest pill for any human being to swallow. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. Many a person has said that that's narrow-minded, that there's, there can't be just one way, but he said it. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. But the world says, well, no, that's too narrow-minded. You see, before Jesus came and spoke, people could get by with doing things their own way. You see, they could be relatively good, and it was okay. I mean, think about it. Before you realized what sin was, before you had a confrontation with your own sin in your life and the fact that you had to be born again, Nicodemus says, we perceive that you're a great prophet. And Jesus said, you, Nicodemus, not we, but you, Nicodemus, need to be born again. Jesus spoke directly to the heart of man. And that's exactly what Jesus does in your life and in my life, is that we come to the reality that what? That we're sinners. And we're incapable of saving ourselves, And so the reality of who Jesus is, is what changes us. And so they, before Jesus, they said, well, hey, we can do things our own way. The intertestamental period, the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, they developed their own set of rules, which was the Pharisaic rules, and they began to abide by their own goodness, right? Jesus had many conversations about that. 
And so on your handout, if your comparison for goodness is someone else and it's not Jesus, well, then your heart has yet to be captivated by who Jesus really is. You see, if your measure, if your standard is a person, well, then you've not been captivated by the reality of Jesus. Because if your measurement is, well, I'm doing better than uh, Pastor Matt, or I'm doing better than, uh, you know, someone else, your neighbor or your friend or someone who doesn't go to church, if that's your measure of goodness, well, then you've not really been captivated by Jesus. You see, after Jesus came, they were revealed for what they were, which is sinners. And they hated the exposure. I wanted to spend a lot of time right here. They, they hated the exposure, the reality of being exposed. Have you ever been found out? Right? That's what happened in Vaughn's life. Right? He said, I didn't want to be a fake. And so, for the sake of hypocrisy, I chose not to participate. Because we have a fear of being exposed. Which is the beautiful thing about the gospel is that you're fully known and yet fully loved. You see, the Pharisees hated the exposure. Today's the same thing. I mean, think about it. You can get on TV. You can talk to your coworker. You can be a school teacher. You can be a federal employee. You know, name the place. And you can have a conversation about God all day long. You can talk about God all you want. You can talk about the amazing things that God has done. You can talk about all the things that are happening in your life or someone else's life or your church about what God is doing. But if you mention the word Jesus, well, that changes everything. All of a sudden now you're being narrow-minded. Well, hang on, you can't be exclusive about that. You see, Jesus, Jesus was hated for his words. But you see, today... The words of Christ, those are the things that reveal who we really are. And we don't like it. Jesus was hated for his words. He was not only hated for his words, he was also hated for his works. You see, what happened is the works of Jesus brought sin to light. When, when, When perfection is the comparison, you lose every time. Right? And so here's Jesus, lived the perfect sinless life, and in comparison to anyone else, the same thing happened in our lives. Look, look in Romans chapter 7. It says, what then shall we say? Verse 7, that the law is sin, question mark, by no means, exclamation mark. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Because why? The wages of sin is what? Is death. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Romans 7, 7 through 12. You see, they hated Jesus because he was doing the works of God, and this revealed their spiritual inabilities. It's the same for you and me. Apart from Jesus, remember John 15, 5, we can do nothing. You see, they thought they were doing pretty good. 
People that are not involved in following Jesus think that they're doing pretty good. As I mentioned, the Pharisees had set up all of these rules and regulations, and now all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and he says, you've heard it said before, but I say unto you, no longer are they the big kids on the block, right? And so the works of Jesus became a sticking point for them. Now they had been exposed. You see, the funny thing about exposure is that the closer that you get to something that's being exposed, maybe a light is shown on something in the darkness, whatever imagery you may have in your mind, but the closer that you get to it, the more visible that it becomes. You see, hearing about God, being at a distance, was good enough for them. It's good enough for those that are not following Jesus, just simply to hear. But when Jesus came and he showed them God, remember John chapter 1, verse 1, we started there, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, when Jesus came and he, he showed them God, well, it was too close for comfort. I think today many people are afraid to come to Christ. Many people reject Christ because they reject themselves. And the reality of being exposed is too much to handle. You know, this song says, if they know my heart, they'll know too much. I think a lot of people struggle with that. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul writes the uh, our Luke writes here, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The the work of Jesus was that uh, in following John the Baptist's proclamation was to repent, to turn from your sins. You see, we don't don't like that word because what, what that means is that we've been confronted with the reality that we failed, that we're incapable of meeting the standard in which God has set, in which Jesus is only capable of meeting. You see, the first step in becoming different from the world is to acknowledge that you're just like the world, right? And that the world is in you, but that God wants to come and invade that space and to change that and to renovate the inside of us. He makes all things new. The Bible says that all things pass away, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, and all things become new. That's what it means to be captivated by Jesus is that everything about you, every fiber of your being becomes focused on who Jesus is and the majesty of Jesus Christ is on display in your life. Just where we started, people that know you but that do not know Jesus will want to know Jesus because they know you. Can we say that? That's that's what happens when we repent. Jesus came to serve notice to evil. You see, in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, the works of Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. And so John, Jesus, is putting the world on notice that it's not Jesus that's on trial. Listen, don't be mistaken. You, you can turn on CNN or Fox News or you pick the station. Do, let, for a second, don't you believe that we're having to prove the validity of who Jesus is? 
He doesn't need me to stand in the gap to prove who he is. He alone can do what he needs to do to be known. Look at creation. Look around. He doesn't need me to do that, but because of love and grace, he allows me to be a part of the redemption of humanity. But make no mistake about it. I don't have to defend him. He's big enough to defend himself. That's the God that we serve. You see, the world is on trial right now. And there will come a day that we'll stand before God as humanity. And individually, every single one of us will give an account for what we've done. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You see, the world hates the believer today. The reason we've been accused is because the world hates Jesus. Number two, We've been accused, well, because, why have we been accused? Well, it's because we've been enlisted. We've been enlisted. In verse 16 and again in verse 19, Jesus said what? He says, I chose you. I chose you. If you're, if you're here this morning and, and you're far from God, or you're here this morning and you're walking with God, that ought to make music sing in your heart. I chose you, Jesus said. Jesus reminded them that contrary to the common practice of disciples picking a teacher, that Jesus had chosen the students. Chose means to pick out for myself. It means selected. It means brought out of. You and I have been chosen. We've been enlisted in the greatest mission ever known to mankind. So let me ask you this morning, is is that the reason that you follow Jesus? A God that you not only read about, but a God that lives in you and lives for you? That's why we follow Jesus? Is that the Jesus that we follow, the one that has chosen us, that has brought us out of our sin? The stories that Vaughn and Jason shared of how they were trapped in, in addiction, they were trapped in loneliness, they were just simply separated from God, and yet God drew them out to himself? Is that the Jesus that you proclaim? You see, the world has their very own version of God. He's neat. He's he's clean. He lives in a box. He's tolerant of sin. You know, he he can. He's a God of love. You know, he can. Uh, you can just do whatever you want, and God's okay with that. The world has created their version of God. Here's the question: Am I following a cultural Jesus, or am I following a gospel-centered? Jesus? Am I following a cultural Jesus or am I following a gospel-centered Jesus? You see, following a cultural Jesus doesn't cost you anything. I mean, that's what the world says. It's a decision that you make. It's not a life change. It's Basically, it's addition. You know, hey, your life's going good, or you're a professional. Uh, you know, there's a church in Jones County where all the professionals go, and You know, it has nothing to do with, you know, desire or godliness or sanctification or salvation. It's just that's where they all go. And so, 
following a cultural Jesus is easy because everybody accepts it. And, and people that follow a cultural Jesus, they don't run into problems in their faith. They don't have decisions to make either to follow God or to follow the world because they're just like the world. It's just addition. Just come to church. Let it be a part of your schedule. But you see, following a gospel-centered Jesus is completely opposite. Following a gospel-centered Jesus calls you and calls me to give up everything. Jesus said, if you, want to call, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It's going to cost you something. You see, following a gospel-centered Jesus will radically transform your life. The cultural norm in Jesus' day, the cultural norm in our day is simply to follow the rules that are made by man. And if the rules change, just follow the new rules. That's what a cultural Jesus is in our world today. But you see, we're different. We've been accused. Why have we been accused? Because we've been enlisted in the army of God. Remember as a child you sang that song, I'm in the Lord's army, I may never shoot the artillery, ride in the infantry, right? You remember that song? But I'm in the Lord's army. And it's due time that we start acting like it, right? That we stand up and we proclaim the goodness of Jesus. That we have the cure for the human ailment. And that is sin. And it's purely Jesus. That only hope can change a heart. It's not a rule. It's not a political organization. It's not a government. It's not anything other than the person of Jesus Christ. It's not behavioral modification. You can't make yourself better to follow Jesus. He loves you just like you are. If that weren't the case, none of us would be here. So we've been enlisted in the army of God. And being enlisted in the army of God means we're going to get shot at, right? That people are going to be upset with us. That they're going to throw fiery darts, the Bible says. That the the enemy is seeking whom he may devour. We have become the enemy of the enemy because we're enlisted. That's what you signed up for if you didn't know. It's too late to leave. You've been enlisted. But Jesus didn't just enlist you. Last but not least this morning, we have been empowered. We have been empowered. So here's the question, or or here's the, the next on your handout. What Jesus gave the disciples was courage. He gave them courage. You know that that hit the brakes moment? A greater love has no man than this, and then he would lay down his life for his friends, and then he says, Oh, by the way, the world's gonna hate you for this. And they, you know, hit the brakes. And then Jesus says in verse 26 and verse 27, this is what he says. He says, but when the helper comes, hey, it's okay, guys. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You've been enlisted in the army of God, and you've been empowered by the Spirit of God. You see, if Jesus is leaving, here's the question, which is what, of course, he's telling his disciples, how will this confrontation happen? How will God reveal himself if he's leaving? How how will he act within humanity if he is about to go away? Well, through you and through me, through the Spirit of God that works inside of us, You see, Jesus was enlisting them in the gospel mission. The learning now had come to an end, and now 
it was time for action. In John chapter 16, we'll get to in a few weeks, he says this. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, this is after what he just said. He says in the world, in the cosmos, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Tonight, hopefully you'll come, we're in Joshua. And one of the things we talk about is how Joshua was enlisted in the army of God. And we talk about 1 John 4, 4 that says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world today. That we've been empowered by the Spirit of God. You see, the disciples, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Jesus appeared to over 500 people, Paul tells us. Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The Bible says in Acts 1-8, the power of the Spirit of God will come. Peter is a different man in Acts than he was at the end of the Gospels, right? He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people get saved at Pentecost. The church begins to transform the church of Jerusalem. As Pastor Tony mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, grew to uh, possibly over 10,000 people. Persecution began to happen, which is what Jesus is talking about here. They began to spread. They, uh, the church at Antioch became a multiplying church. They began to send people out. They're going to Athens. They're going to Berea. They're going to Thessalonica. They're, they're going everywhere for the gospel. They've been enlisted. The disciples have been radically changed. Their hearts have been captivated by the king of the universe in the form of a man named Jesus, and they gave everything they had for the cause of the, of the dispersion of the gospel. And so tradition says that Matthew was killed by a sword. Peter was crucified. Andrew and Nathaniel crucified. James beheaded. John exiled. Philip stoned. Thomas stabbed with a spear. And Judas clubbed to death physically. All physical. You see, they gave their lives for the cause of the gospel. They were accused because they were enlisted and they were empowered. You see, still today, Christians are statistically the most persecuted group in the world. You see, what happens when Jesus comes is that Jesus convicts. When people, have a, when people are exposed, there's conviction that takes place. Jesus penetrates our self-deceptions, right? We can trick ourselves, but you can't trick Jesus. He penetrates our defensive ploys and, and our excuses. He confronts us. He exposes us. He cross-examines us, and ultimately, without Jesus, we are prosecuted. You see, everywhere the kingdom advances, there is a violent engagement against a dark kingdom. And so what happens as we follow Jesus is we are enlisted in a dangerous mission. That we've been called. That we have been set apart. And so in the accusation this morning, I want to remind you that we've been enlisted. 
And you've been given everything that you need to complete the mission. And so what I want to ask you to do is to join me this morning and say, Petty Officer Matt, reporting for duty, sir. Let's pray.